This episode is brought to you by Mountain Sea Media. I spent half my life near the Pacific Ocean and the other half in the mountains of Central Oregon. These places are full of profound stories and experiences that guide my life, even now as a media creator and a beer professional. This is how Mountain Sea Media was born. I realized how impactful stories are to our lives and business. Stories share good experiences and the warmth of friends. They improve business by sharing these experiences and connecting deeply with our customers. If you'd like to connect better with your customers through copywriting and storytelling, contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com. It's your story. I'll help you tell it. Welcome to episode 40 of Good Beer Matters. staring at those soils thinking, gosh, I wonder what our soils are telling us. I think for the industry, it's kind of a scary thing in a way. It's elevated the game all the way around and right down to the vines. Terroir is soil, climate, and cultural practices that influences, in this case, the aroma and hop. Terroir. It's a word that means many things, especially to the wine industry. Terroir encompasses soil types, chemistry, cardinal directions, elevation, weather, and so much more. We've known about water profiles from major brewing areas and how they affect beer for quite some time. We also know that subspecies of yeast bring different flavors as evidenced by Belgian ales, German Weissbeers, or simply ales versus lagers. But the flavor difference between malts and hops remained a mystery and were really taken on subjective faith. For years, brewers, hop growers, and maltsters have claimed that terroir influences the ingredients in our beer, but surprisingly, there was no real data, no real evidence to prove what we've suspected for a long time. That is, until my next guest asked the question and put together a team to empirically prove the world of hop terroir. My name is Jeremy. I'm a certified Cicerone, BJCP judge, IBD certified brewer, and a beer writer. I believe the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. I believe there's a world of wisdom found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. This is Good Beer Matters. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 40 of Good Beer Matters with Liz and John Coleman of Coleman Agriculture and Coleman Hops. doing great i you know i i know you're still kind of in harvest season and you're a very very busy person thank you for fitting me into this uh crazy not, schedule not yours at all. not at all and apologize for the back and forth and time changing i just well, i have a to start a minute i want to introduce you to uh my husband john Johnny, hi, Jeremy. Jeremy. Yes. hi how are you today i'm great how are you Good, thank you. Thank you very much. And we can all agree good beer matters. Good beer matters. <laughs> Absolutely. And also, thank you for your patience. <laughs> we're we, we're hit like hitting a moving target, aren't we? John, pleased to meet you over the phone at least. Um, I did have a, a nice conversation with Liz uh, last week, I think it was. But, um, yes, yes. But uh, it, it sounds like we are of the same uh, sound mind and body when it comes to hops. Oh, perfect. I love to like-minded people. <laughs> um, so uh, let's let's go ahead and start off with this um, interview then. I know you uh, you guys are very, very busy, especially now. So um, let's kick this off. Um, will you both please introduce yourselves? Yes. I am Liz Coleman, co-owner of Coleman Agriculture. I manage strategic projects for our farm. And uh, I am a leader of our Tawar project. Jeremy, my name is John Coleman. I'm the senior hop or perennial crop manager, which includes hops. And I also work for Coleman Egg and a co-owner. Uh, so you're an employee of, John? <laughs> yes, I'm, a, I'm an employee of Coleman Egg, yes. Or, or is that, or is that, is that just because, uh, like, I have a wife, so therefore she is the boss, and therefore I'm like the employee of the household? Is that kind of how that works? No, no, we just we're all owners. There's three couples that are owners, and we also have jobs, so we have a president that we serve under. 
Oh, that's how our, that's how Coleman Ag works. Oh, interesting. So um, I I did see that you guys are family owned. Um, yeah. I, I guess I just kind of assumed that there was a. I, well, family owners, but I, you know, in this day and age, there are sometimes um, outside owners as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. No, this is all family here, and and our president is an outside. Uh, he's a hired employee. Also, he serves to the board, and uh, some of his employees. I'm one. Bill Liz is one, and there's a couple other that are actually owners that are, still work on the farm. Fantastic. Um, so that that is a wonderful little segue. Uh, let's, can we talk a little bit about uh, Coleman Farms and uh, Coleman Agriculture? I, I, I believe is that the correct term of the business name? Yes. Yeah, yeah Coleman Agriculture Incorporated. Yes. So does that imply that you uh, farm more than just hops? Yes. We also raised uh, hazelnuts, which is falls under my purview under perennial crops, and then we have some annual crops which would be uh, like vegetables, mostly processed vegetables, bush beans, sweet corn, cauliflower. Um, and we also raise seed crops, which would be garlic, uh, spinach, radish, um, grass seed. We also raise wheat. Um, we also raise a small acreage of hemp. That well, that does seem to be the uh, crop that uh, everyone is trying to grow these days. <laughs> I, I, I can't yeah, drive yeah. from I can't drive from my house to uh, the big city of Bend without seeing just uh, hemp growing on both sides of the highway. So, yeah, we've got the same thing here in the valley. We, we're just raising twenty acres, and our our purpose is to try to understand more about the growing of it and handling of it. Um, we. We did it a year ago. We have a lot of learnings from last year, and we hope to get a little smarter after this year. And so that's that's why we do it. We also, because we have hop kilns, we are helping other people dry their hemp. So we're able to keep our hop kilns busy for longer than hop harvest. Oh, that's nice. You have such yeah, great big infrastructure that's used once a year. It's a shame. Yeah, exactly. 30 days, 35 days here in Oregon. Wow. And, and and I got to see uh, the uh, hop producing facility uh, at uh, Rogue Farms a couple years ago, and just kind of looking at that gigantic facility, uh, gigantic from what I've experienced, but um, and just seeing that it, it's operational one month a year, and the rest of the year is just kind of sitting there waiting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we got, we actually call that farm the alluvial farm. Rogue does have a business there, and they lease from us, mm-hmm. and we actually perform the the services of raising their hops for them and uh, the connection between that's our connection with Rogue. Oh, so that's your and, farm. Yeah, that's our farm. We own that farm. Oh, so and that's, the, okay. uh, the, uh, they rent about 20 acres from us and that's, there's about a thousand and fifty acres we farm down there of hops. And so it's a pretty small percentage, but it creates a very unique atmosphere at the farm as far as having the people, the public come in and try beers at Rogue and, and wander through the uh, hop fields or wander around and check out the machinery like you did. Yes. That machine, that machine, the size of it is based because there's a thousand acres of hops. That's why it's large. Gotcha. Well, I, I will let you know that I, I did wander into uh, the hop yards, but I was guided. And uh, I did I did not leave any um, glasses behind, nor did I break anything in your hop field, just just so you know. Perfect. Thank you for being a responsible tourist. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I, I will uh, land that plane that you guys uh, kind of like uh, uh, hovered a little bit. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so speaking of uh, Coleman Farms, um, it's my understanding that it goes back a number of generations. Can you tell me about that? There, it sounds like there's a little bit of a story there. Uh, Coleman Agriculture went has got, is about five years old, four or five years old. We the, the name, two thousand fourteen. Yeah, and and the start of the farm would would be the Coleman family, and yes, that is six generations of my generation. Our kids would be seven. Um, and so, yeah, that started uh, on the Oregon Trail, actually back in the Midwest. And the, the first Coleman's that came to Oregon came on the Oregon Trail, settled in the small town of St. Paul, Oregon, and uh, moved around a little bit, came back to St. Paul to raise their family and start a farm there. And we have 
been it's transitioned. It's certainly it's been cut up since the original family. We still have a, a portion of that original farm uh, as some of the farms we raise hops on, and uh, we have cousins, of course, and neighbors who own parts of that same farm. Um, and so it's kind of yeah, that's our connection to uh, I guess I'd say what would that be 160, 70 years ago. So. Wow, that is tremendous. And so, uh, and so you have a family legacy that goes back in Oregon and really the Northwest for, like you just said, what, 100, what did you say, 150 years, 160 years? Yeah, 1847. So I guess I was trying to do the math in my head as I was talking to you. So I would say 100 and, uh, 172 years. Yeah, so that was right before Civil War, and just a few years after uh, uh, this wonderful beer called Pilsner was uh, invented and uh, went on to dominate the world. So, uh, and, and 13 years before Oregon became a state. Yes, yes, and yeah, there's that as well. It's uh, wow, what a what a story. Um, but uh, just that whole region of of Oregon, um, as far as hops go, also kind of has its own story as well. Um, I'd love for you to fill in the gaps, but the story that I know is around the turn of the century, 1900, up even up to the 30s. Um, Right where right where you guys are was the hop center of the entire world. Uh, where you guys, um, yeah, that, that's, that's where the, the Independence Farm. I think you're talking, you're speaking to, right? Uh, well, th- I thought it was just that general area, but if yeah, if if it was something more specific, please let me know. Yeah, yeah, the hop capital of the world was Independence, Oregon, in that time frame. You spoke oh, okay. to. Okay. Uh, St. Paul, Silverton, Mount Angel, Woodburn area, Jervis towards Salem. They all, there was a lot of hops in the area, but the biggest concentration and by far the, the most acreage was in the Independence area. And part of the farm we have now down there where you were is some of the original hops that, uh, not the original hops themselves, but the original farms that were part of that, I guess, that fame. And that whole area you were in was hops at one time. And, uh, some of the older names, Meeker, uh, there was another name, the uh, uh, Von Horse. There was another older name of uh, a hop dealer, Livesey. And those names are all on the properties in that area. And those are some of those hop growers you spoke to that were hop growers during that, the big, the big uh, I guess, claim to fame of Independence, Oregon. Yeah. Well, and it was it, it, that was interesting is, um, you know, that was, like you were just saying, that that was the hop center of the world, and then along came World War One, then along came the Depression, and and along came uh, Prohibition, and along came World War Two, and so uh, that area never quite regained that that uh, hop status. Um, do, do, yeah, I, I, do I have that correctly? Would, yeah, you do. And, and, and what really, I think what happened is when the market, the Prohibition was really the main one, when it came around, a lot of people just quit raising hops, and uh, I think that's why it did what it did. And I, as as I was saying those names, those farms were really, really big farms back then. And so I think a lot of the businessmen that owned those farms at the time moved on to other 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 ventures once the prohibition came, and they saw that hops were going to be something they couldn't sell. Mm. So I think that's part of it. I think. I think then what happened is World War II came along and the quest for beer came back. I think in Washington State in the Yakima area, that's where the hops really started to take off because it was actually a, an easier climate to raise hops because there weren't a lot of pesticides and ways to take care of pests back then. Okay. So the, dry, the drier climate and they had irrigation water was a very useful way to grow hops or an easier way to grow hops than here in the valley where it's more moderate and a little, lot more rain and moisture to deal with, which creates a lot more pressure for mildew. Hmm. And so I think in, in uh, Washington State, I, w- I would say that's how they start to get a foothold on the acreage. And uh, as you know, today it's 75%, I think, of the U.S. market is uh, grown in the Yakima Valley of all the hops. I, 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 thought it was, I thought it would be higher than that. but Well, you know, there's a lot more hops being grown throughout the United States, so it could at one time have been higher, but at this point it's around 75%. It's quite. It's a big. It, there's a lot of acreage, and they have a lot of it. <laughs> gotcha. Well, uh, and maybe you can uh, help correct me on this. Um, 
this uh, math as well, but the last time I remember reading that Germany was still the number one grower of hops, followed by the U.S., which really meant uh, Washington State was number two in the world, and then Oregon and maybe a little bit of Idaho was uh, came in number three. Have have those stats changed? Uh, I would say Idaho is number two today, and Oregon's number three. Idaho has jumped ahead of Oregon, and I think a lot of it is the same reasons. There's They've discovered a, or not discovered, it's been raising hops there, but because the market is, is better, the market is a higher price and there's more money to be made, and it's a pretty easy place to get started to grow hops in that area of Idaho along the Snake River outside of uh, Wilder and Caldwell. It's kind of western Idaho, and uh, I think that's why you see more acreage. The acreage is starting to uh grow there in Idaho because these farms, there's plenty of land and, and it's easy to grow hops there. Well, and then, uh, and thank you for sharing that. Uh, the other thing that I've heard and I haven't verified myself, um, is that, uh, Washington is really known for more, uh, like, uh, bittering hops and Oregon is known more for aroma and, uh, finishing hops. Is that correct? Or is there a different story there? Or is it more detailed than that? I would say there's probably another layer to it. I think I think for aroma hops, from a practicality on the on the financial side, Washington and Idaho do a much better job than Oregon because of the climate. Again, the varieties that are alpha varieties do well in those areas, and they don't have to fight diseases like they would here in this in Oregon. And so they do pretty well with alphas in that area. On the aroma side, aromas are grown everywhere. I think what's different, and Liz can speak to this with with her terroir is that the um, moderation or the moderate climate here in Oregon creates a different hop than it does in Washington or in Idaho. So if you like a Simcoe from Oregon, it's going to be different than a Simcoe from Washington or Idaho. And that is a beautiful segue. The the next thing I really want to dive into is just let's just do a big old cannonball in the in the pool of the hop terroir study. Um, I I remember I interviewed uh, John Meyer for a, a podcast episode, and, and we were talking about the the hop shortage of 2006. I think it was um, the big mm-hmm. warehouse caught fire, and everyone's scrambling for hops. and And he said that they were um, that Rogue was trying to get Cascades from Argentina, but it it tasted completely different. And which really spoke to, well, okay, uh, you know, there is terroir there and we all seem to believe and taste that it was there. But, um, but, you know, there are those people, well, well, without proof and numbers, then, you know, I don't believe it. Um, Yeah. Even though we all, we, we accept this emphatically when it comes to wine, but, um, but with beer, it just seems, I I don't know, there was less of a buy-in. Um, can, can you tell us about the, uh, the hop terroir study and how it came to be? Absolutely. Uh, and what you just uh, pointed out in the wine industry, it's, it's been around for centuries, right? The, the understanding that different regions around the world have different um, influences. The soils in which the grapes are grown, uh, different influences um, come out. Uh, those influences come out in the wine that we drink. And so it was a... Uh, about a year ago, a little, little more than a year ago, where uh, John and I and his hop team uh, took some interns on a field trip to a local winery here in, uh, near us in Dundee, Oregon. Uh, James Fry, the wine master at Trisadum, was doing a fantastic job over uh, going into great detail with three uh, cylinders of soil and uh, essentially romancing the story and let, ha- helping us understand how the history of those soils projected outward into the grapes and then the wine that he was able to make with those um, grapes. So in that moment, I did not grow up on a farm. Uh, John and I had been married almost uh, 30 years. But uh, in that moment, I, I was staring at those soils thinking, gosh, I wonder what our soils are telling us. And this, there must be um, that information somewhere. It's a shame we're really not using it. So after we got back to the farm, I asked John about that. And same as you, uh, Jeremy, that John said, you know, it's something that we just sort of intuitively know. Brewers know that. We as hop growers know that. But I just don't think that there's anything out there on record and suggested that uh, I reach out to Dr. Tom Shellhammer, who's been a great uh, friend and partner to our farm uh, for a long time and 
Tom's well-known around the globe and the work that he does at Oregon State University and his research. So when I put the call in to Tom that day to ask him uh, what he thought about that and where this information might exist, maybe we could get uh, look into it. There was this wonderful silence. And if, if you know Tom, he's got this very uh, curious um, energy about him, um, which I appreciate as a researcher. And he said, no, there wasn't any data out there on it, though he too suspected that there's a there there. So within just a, a short amount of time, uh, we'd agreed to partner on launching a study, a private study, because we had the benefit of having our farm is broken up into geographies within the Willamette Valley. And we farm as far north as uh, St. Paul and as far south as Independence, Oregon, Independence, Oregon, rather. It's about and, 45 miles apart there. Yeah, 45 miles apart. And, uh, um, and we have three different regions within the, sorry, within those farms, the third one being Mount Angel, Oregon. So we had from that particular uh, crop year two samples, uh, two varieties, rather, of samples that we could do side-by-side comparisons um, from each geographical location. So pulled together a, a great team on our end. Um, Oregon State had a, a team to add their resources to, and then we pulled in a soil uh, scientist by the name of Andy Gallagher, and Andy um, is great. He's uh, also in Corvallis, but Andy has done, um, I want to say, going on three decades of scientific research in soil studies for the wine industry and understanding their terroirs. So we took the study all the way from soil to uh, the brew, and we took it through uh, three different processes. We started the soil, started with soil study, then we went into a hop cone analysis. Um, we analyzed it all the way through um, sensory, so we had blind tastings and to discover um, the fact that there is a there there, there are distinguishable differences within the different brews that came out of those different growing regions, which was a really wonderful moment to just put some data behind the notion that um, many people have had. And our, the, the beauty of that is that if we can have conversations like this and we can spark the energy of what this can do to the brewing industry and just appreciating the differences around the globe and have something that brewmasters and hop masters can work together on um, to blend their craft and to ideate and design around how hops are cultivated and grown, how to get the best of them out of these beautiful plants, and how to then bring that into these designs and these brews that these um, brewers are bringing forward. T- together, that union is this is this perfect um, point in time where we've we've reached just as the wine industry has been able to do so artfully in their world. Well, and how have you been able to resist the temptation to uh, to wave your uh, uh, your your tongue and 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 tell people, "See, I told you so." Oh no! Well, it wasn't so much of a definitely not a "I told you so." It was wow. If we can put a definitive, you know, science behind it, right? It's not what holds everybody back. Is show me the data, and then uh, who can argue with data, right? So. Um, not so much as there was a resistance to it ever, more so it was look at what we can do with this now. Look at how we can use this as inspiration. You know, and I love it because these soils have something to say about the history, and there's so many benefits to it for growers and brewers alike to understand the history in these soils and what they're saying, you know, the the time that has gone past and what the soils have seen and endured over thousands and thousands of years, it, it just through inspiration alone helps um, us all understand how that's presenting in the brews that we drink. Yeah, and I would add that you, you spoke about that, about how
how exciting it would be to say that. And I think for the industry, it's kind of a scary thing in a way because the industry traditionally has been homogenized tops. If you wanted a Simcoe, they wanted it to be the same across the board no matter where it came from. So they actually blend hops from different regions to try to create the perfect Simcoe in their, in their mind using analysis with the oils and the, the appearance and stuff like that. They would use those to create blends of Simcoe. And I think really what's woken up the brewing industry and, and the farms at this point is the fact that the craft brewers have become much more important to the market of hops. And I think that's a pretty relatively new thing. I mean, they've, there's always, there's been a craft market for what now, 30 plus years, but I really think it's significantly, it's moved into the main frame, main part of the hop market in the last, maybe since you said 2006, 2007. So let's just say in that range. So the last 10 years, 10, 12 years, craft breweries have become the driver of everything to do with beer and hop growing. Mm -hmm. And so I think what's going on, and this is really apparent to us on our farm in the last two years, is we're an owner in Yakima Chief Hops. So we grow Simcoe, Citra, Mosaic for them. And we'll get brewers that will show up or want to meet us because they've chosen a lot from our field. And their their desire to come see us is to talk about what we're doing and where did that hop come from. So we physically take them out to the field, show them the area, kind of show them the, you know, the geographic and, and the, uh, the, ter- the terrain and where we're at and, and kind of talk to them about what we're doing out there. And they just, it's interesting, but Nine times out of ten, the ones that we've that we've talked to have gone up to selection, and they've chosen those hops again because they found something that they like in that hop. It doesn't mean it's any better than anyone else's. It's just what they feel is the best use of their time to create the beer that they want to create. It it helps them serve their purpose, and that's what's exciting for us. Mm-hmm. And I think I think with Yakima Chief leading the way. And seeing this happening with a lot of their breweries as a merchant, as a merchant they're really going to start pushing it, and I think it's going to be a it's going to be a new thing you're going to hear more and more about. The, the really fun thing about that too, as we uh, as the model for merchants and brokers has been, you know, dating back. I'm not going to pretend to be the historian here. That's definitely John's forte. <laughs> the way back when, you know where um, that model was built was on uh, macro scale for corporate brewing, I'll yeah, say, right? Yeah. And, um, and for good reason, too, to create consistencies, as John had just spoke about. What can be uh, a nervousness? It was interesting. When the idea of this study arose, um, it's always good to, to do a little bit of a pulse check uh, before you entertain and things like this because of the... Um, you know, to socialize a little bit and anticipate any um, unforeseen, uh, unintended circumstances, right? So in talking to a few people scattered around the industry in different roles, one of the, the question that, that everyone came up with, like, gosh, you know, folks in the broker and merchant industry may not appreciate this. It goes against the very model. And the, the thing that we love about it is it actually Keeps, can keep that very model intact because it's it's essential to a wide variety of brewing, establishing those consistencies for consumers. At the same time, it opens up a whole nother channel or platform to celebrate the uniquenesses that brewers are looking to achieve, which really ultimately what drinkers, what consumers are really wanting to get, especially at a time where we're seeing, what is it, over 9,000 craft breweries across the U.S. alone, is there's a wall of wine, you know, at every store, grocery store and market, and there's a wall of beer that's growing. And um, if anybody, every consumer wants is, why this beer? And there's plenty of beers to go around for everybody, for all unique palates um, and tastes. Uh, just as there is for wine. And so this just helps identify and celebrate like the specialness um, within each one. And I would totally agree with that. And, and just kind of hearing this uh, story come out, my my brain automatically jumped to the idea of, you know, once upon a time, decades ago, if you wanted to taste a really good British bitter, you had to go to England. And that's where, yeah. you, know, you know, all these... Um, 
uh, uh, would-be uh, homebrewers uh, traveled uh, to Europe in the 60s and 70s and thought, wow, this stuff is way better than our stuff. And so they came <laughs> back, started trying to brew it. Next thing you know, um, they're homebrewing and then they're starting up breweries. And then now we've got Sierra Nevada, we've got Brooklyn Brewing, we've got... and But in this day and age, like John, you said, everything's become homogenized. I can brew a British bitter at, you know, or, or any brewery nearby can brew a British bitter and call it, you know, an ESB, but it's not going to be the same. Um, right. But with the homogenization of yeast and hops and we can control our water profiles, it, it kind of gets, it, 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 you know, it, it it's kind of sad to to an extent where if you want to go travel and taste your way around, you you want to taste the uniqueness of that place. I'm not going to go to North Dakota for street tacos. I want to go to San Diego, Ensenada. You know, it's <laughs> right, right. Just because right. It, it's going to, it's really going to be what this place is known for. What this the, the flavors that just really shine and and it this kind of gives the promise of having that aspect. Um, back where, okay, yeah, you can have a, a New England um, hazy, but it's not going to taste like anything with their brewing way out east. Right. And, and, you know, there's always that thing to try to achieve the best that we can using what you have naturally. Right. And so that, that goes back to it. It's, it's uh, less of a competition and, you know, definitely between states here or the region in, in the U.S. Um, there is differences between Idaho, Washington, and Oregon hops. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing, depending on what you're brewing. And I always, I always like to go to an artist on a palette, right? I mean, you, you could have three shades of blue, but if you multiply that out infinitely, what you could create with that is, is nothing but magnificent, knowing that there's this multitude of options for you depending on what you're looking for, what you envision as a brewer. And then, you know, the other great thing that's happened about this with this before is, and John, John can attest to this throughout time, you know, growers, uh, any farmer, right, is growing a thing usually then to hand off to a merchant or a market to sell for them, and that's what they do best. And, and maybe even in a lot of reasons, that's what they're most comfortable with, and hops have been a commodity. The great thing about the world and as small as it's become now for a variety of reasons is this allows for um, dialogue and Yakma Chief are great partners uh, with this to encourage the dialogue between brewers and growers and scientists and merchants all the way around. So together we're rising the tide for everybody and together we're creating and adding information to what's going to make premium ultimately premium drinks, you know, backing way upstream to those hops and the earth that they're growing and, and understanding that and knowing, you know, the benefits of knowing how to manage our soils properly, the information that we gain from the studies. I mean, it just explodes way out beyond just the benefits, of course, to the drink. It's what we can find out about it. How do we can manage the land better and more responsibly because of it? And um, it's just, it's just a good thing. The whole thing has just, we, we scratched the surface, that's for sure. But if we can encourage others to jump in, uh, go to their commissions, be looking for funding, learn from one another's research uh, efforts, and we can begin to drop pins all over the globe and further understand really fantastic differences between areas, between geographies. Well, there's two aspects to that that really uh, resonate with me in, in part or loudest of all, I should say. But number one is, is, is I definitely want um, uh, consumers eventually to, sorry, uh, I eventually want consumers to, like, you know, you walk in and ask for a Pinot Noir. Well, is it from California or Oregon? Because they're very different Pinot Noirs. Um, mm -hmm, right. I want people to come and say, well, I'd like an IPA. Well, this IPA is from San Diego. This one's from Bend. This one's from Portland. That one's from, mm -hmm. um, this one's from Florida. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and for eventually people will know the difference and to really have that sense of place back. Um, and the second thing, to, you know, to your point about the environment is just having a deep appreciation of of the environment and doing a better job taking care of our environment because you know it, it's really in our our best interest to to take care of it and treat it well if we mm -hmm. um, 
uh, pun intended, but we harvest what we uh, sow, and and, uh, oh, yeah. and 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 you know if if we just kind of uh, haul off and just try and maximize our yield, it, it's really not going to work out well for us in the end. Absolutely, it's elevated the game all the way around, and right down to the vines too. Right, as John and his team are finding out, you know, you, you're you're taking a step back, and um, I like to call these vines, you know, her. It is a it is a feminine plant, <laughs> right? See, but it's great because now you're looking at this beautiful uh, vine differently, right? And she's able to talk to you and in a different way than before because we're paying attention in ways that we have before really knowing how she grows well, really knowing uh, what soils are um, enriching and helping her thrive. And so there's a great evaluation here saying, gosh, this variety has done well here, but look over here uh, at another region of our farm, you know, 40 miles north, it's, it's growing even better. So let's consider as John and his team do future planning too. And with, with brewers and, and merchants, and uh, dig into that, and scientists alike, dig into that and understand why we have more information to go from and make those decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you mm-hmm. know, that's the whole premise of my podcast with with uh, better better understanding uh, begets better appreciation and a, which in turn begets a, a better experience. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and you're, you're, you're preaching to the converted now. so uh let's let's take a couple big steps back um i should have started off with this and i i blame myself but um help help me and anyone listening uh have a better understanding of what terroir is the word terroir and and what it is we're talking about You, you mentioned soil but my understanding is there's so much more that goes into the terroir of what that is can you explain that Absolutely. I mean, truly the definition of terroir is soil, climate, and cultural practices that influences, in this case, the aroma and hops. You could even probably talk about that with um, um, with, with veggies, really, really anything. But, I mean, you get a different mm-hmm. taste and feel. Um, uh, I think, theoretically, one could apply that term to uh, music. And I love using that um Mm. Uh, kind of describing flavors in in, in terms of music, uh, of, as far as just mm-hmm. understanding styles. And you know, people say, "Well, you like music? Yes, I like music. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, uh, what kind of music do you like? I like blues. Well, do you mm-hmm. like do you like Chicago blues? Do you like uh, Mississippi <laughs> blues? Right, do you right, like Texas right. blues? Uh, let, let's let's dive this in. So, using that as a term of terroir, just understanding the feel, the flavor, the sound, the the unique characteristics that come from this particular place due to a variety of factors. Is that a, mm-hmm. a fair summation of understanding terroir? Absolutely. That's a great way to look at it. Yep, absolutely. Then, uh, so tell us a little bit more about uh, the study that you did. Um, uh, you already talked about the people that you partnered out, but how did you actually study this? What what exactly were you measuring? Well, the uh, of the three factors, the um, or actually of the phases that we studied was the um, soil, uh, then the nutrients within the soil. John Sunshine, you're going to answer for both of, of us. The mineralization of the what type of minerals and to what levels they are on top of what was nutrient wise was in the soil. Mm-hmm. The type of soil, of course. Um, in some cases, most of our soil around St. Paul, Mount Angel. Mostly St. Paul is from the Missoula floods, where down at Independence, it's basically newer in the sense that it's an alluvium. So the Willamette River bends around our farm, and over the thousands of years, it's generated that soil there. Hmm. And um, so those are probably out of the Cascade Mountain range. But they've, you know, they've, been, they've been ground down to fine sands and fine loams that have basically leached from other places in the valley and settled there. So it's a little different soil there, and um, the um, I guess the other part of that would be the uh, the nutrient side of the cultural practice side. It's kind of when do how do we crown? How do we and crowning is how we remove the old material from the previous year. How do we how do we prepare the soil? What are some of our cultural practices? You know, how, what kind of fertilizer program do we have? What kind of irrigation program do we have? What kind of, uh, like, cover crop programs do we do? Um, most of those are the things that we can control. And as far as the, you know, the, 
the other things that were studied beyond the soil would be the actual hops. So they took analysis of the hops from each place, and they decided what was in those hops and the breakdowns and the levels. And then they did a brew with each one of those hops, mm. basically the same recipe but a different hop. And that's where they had a they had a panel of tasting people there, people to taste. But and these, they were the but ones these were... that saw the differences. We could see the differences checked, you know, from data. But it, when it was actually through the people drinking the beer, that's when we noticed the big the differences. There was definitely differences that people saw. Now, were th- now weren't these it's essentially the same hop, but just from different parts of the yard, yeah. of the valley? There was, and there was two different hops essentially that we were okay. that we were testing. Uh-huh. Two hops from been... each from each region of our. The centennial from St. Paul was much different than the centennial from Independence, and they, that came out in the beer. Um, the sterling from Independence was different than the sterling from Mount Angel. That came out in the beer. The soils are different. The, uh, the analysis were pretty similar, but those tastes were what were the, difference, the differences really shown. So, so on paper, the hops were essentially the same. Did I understand that correctly? That I mean, all the the data, the alphas, and and the, everything else that you that you guys will typically measure and put out there, those were relatively same or similar. Well, yeah, there's a range that most hops fall into by variety. So, a centennial across the board will fall into a certain a certain zone of level, and 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 like Yakima Chief, we see this a lot. Hops from Oregon, hops from Washington. When they when they do their brewing analysis, most of the tests fall in some sort of zone, traditional zone, and so it's hard to look at the test and say, oh, there's a big difference. You can maybe see a little difference one way or the other, but anything large, you can't. It's harder to see. Gotcha. So it was more in the taste where they really noticed the difference. So what were those differences? I'm dying to know. I think, well, we don't have the information here in front of us from the tastings, but I think what they were talking about is, I think it was, uh, uh, there was more tropical and more citrus from certain areas versus, and more malt came through in other areas because the hop wasn't as strong. Mm. So we can, unfortunately, we don't have that in front of us. I'm sorry. We, we no, can, that's okay. Yeah, we're happy to yeah, provide some the report to you. Not a problem. Yeah, well, I, I would definitely stick that in the show notes for anyone who's uh, geeky enough about beer like me to actually take a mm-hmm. look and, and see that. But I think that's the interesting thing is, you know, I, I'm definitely not a scientist. I'm going to I'm gonna concede that to uh, Dr. Shellhammer and let him do all the data. I'm, I'm the one who mm-hmm. wants to um, taste it. I want to see the differences mm-hmm. uh, for myself and, and just kind of <laughs> contemplate that and, and then share the story with others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that, and I wish, uh, yeah, I wish we had the information there, so it'd be a little easier to speak to. No, no, that's okay. But um, uh, my understanding, I actually ran into uh, Dr. Shellhammer at a, uh, a beer fest uh, one day, and he and I were chatting about this uh, terroir study. And he said that uh, you guys are now heading toward round two. Is that right? We are. We're in discussions about not not if, but but uh, what exactly that study will look like, and so. Um, the great thing is, you know, uh, Yakima Chief is and being grower owners in that business too. The, because of conversations like these, um, and because we're constantly, you know, every opportunity we can to communicate that out, we're able to connect uh, with folks that are engaged in similar studies. So right now, we're 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 trying to do um, or work with folks that are um, doing research, finding out exactly what research uh, uh, they're after. Um, so we can complement each other's work to broaden the types of study we're doing. Mm. The nice thing is we're, we're we, within the 22 varieties that we grow at Coleman, uh, we've collected samples this year. When the notion arrived last year uh, to do the study, we it was after harvest, and we had less availability to certain samples of the um, – couldn't get every variety that we wanted sure. grown on our farm that year. So this year, we've um, collected samples of all of them. They're on the ready, and everyone's just sort of poised. But right now, we're in conversation about exactly how to tackle that, narrow it down. As you might imagine, I mean, you could go deep with a study like this, really deep. Oh, and, of course. Um, and uh, I know Colorado's got a study going. Um, I know several states, the three universities. Yep, Colorado State. Um, 
so uh, right now it's about how do we kind of bring everybody together and get on similar enough pages that we're putting out information and populating it out so that we're establishing some sort of um, uh, um, rhythm to the work that we're putting out there so it's a benefit to you know, a vast amount of people. And I'm sure this just adds another item on your to-do list, but it's a fascinating thing, not only to talk about, okay, you guys this year studied these two varieties, Sterling and Centennial, I believe I heard you say. Um, and so the you know obvious question would be, well, what about all the other varieties? But the question that I am thinking about is how do these change year after year after year? I mean, people talk about vintages and wine and, and their, right. and their uh, forms of beer people that will talk about this, this, this winter ale from this popular brewery, oh, I like the thirteen better than the fifteen, and 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 right, and then right, and then right, and, exactly. and in that exact scenario, I talked to the main brewer of said brewery that puts out that winter ale, and I said, yeah, the recipe is exactly the same every year, but but the perception is it changes from year to year, and I wonder if that's part of the terroir. It could very well be. I, I what I would add is is that uh, this year, from my perspective, being in the fields, being in the kilns, seeing the seen the hops grow, I think we're going to have a different type of hop that comes off of all of our fields than we, you know, than we had a year ago. Uh, the crop was down and yield a little bit this year. There was a lot of varieties that did well, but there were some varieties that were down. We had a more moderate summer and we had more, we did have more disease pressure. And I think those variables are going to cause some differences in, in what the brewers will smell when they go to select their hops, hmm. when they look at them. So it'll be interesting. Uh, we don't know that information yet. We did take some of the same centennials down to uh, Corvallis to add, to have, to look at as far as the analysis and maybe brewing with them later. But that hasn't been decided yet how we're going to go about that. We also, mm-hmm. we included other varieties that are more common today, Mosaic, Citra, I believe Simcoe also, because uh, they, they're just more, everybody seems to know those varieties and there are a lot of beer today. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those, yeah, those are, uh, uh, common beers or common hops and beers. Um, so, uh, you know, go ahead. Jeremy, the other thing, you know, just another thing to think about too, and uh, just to add to your thought too, like whether, you know, like I said, there's so many factors as we're discovering that could influence the, the, the aroma in the, in the beers. And, you know, the, another one of the great benefits that this has brought forward is, picking window, the harvest window that we we are using. And what's ideal to some brewers might be um, something different to another. So that's adding information to know when an ideal time to pick a hop. And it, it might be on a sliding scale too, which can either give latitude to the grower and harvest or uh, give us just have us a little bit more of a, uh, give us a surgical approach in a way where knowing that uh, how to dial that in a little tighter. I think the conversation I was a part of uh, up at uh, Brew School at Yakima Chief was between Russian River and the Pliny the Elder and then Lagunitas with all the different beers they do. They both use Simcoe, but Pliny or Russian River would rather have an early harvest Simcoe where uh, Lagunitas would rather have the later harvest Simcoe for their beer. So they... They kind of chose when they when they went to see a lot. They would say, you know, look at the harvest dates and decide. Okay, these are the ones I want to see because I like them later. I like what comes out of this hop later in the uh, harvest window. Oh, that sounds so much like wine snobs. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, we were lucky enough to go up and watch selection through different brewers, brewers we didn't even know at Yakima Chief, and it is an education to mm-hmm. see and watch them. Mm-hmm. And um, they're very excited to see a, you know, visit with farms as they watch, you know, what they're doing there is picking hops for their next year's brews. And they're very excited to meet the farmers who are growing those hops. So it's very interesting, and it's very informative. There's a lot of information that you wouldn't even think about that is that is there for their purview and helps them decide which hop is the best hop for them. Well, and we might be setting ourselves up for another uh, uh, part two of like the story of the Cascade Hop, for example. Uh, and the story I heard, mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, created by Alex Honnold at uh, OSU. And but mm-hmm. I mean, back in those days, we, we had 
we had uh, American lagers. Who wants something with flavor and, and nuance? And uh, and so they just kind of shelved it until uh, Fritz Maytag and uh, Ken Grossman came along and said, "Hey, let's tr- let's see what we can do with this one." And the rest is history. Uh, <laughs> so so all these hops that people are thinking, oh, I don't know, but I don't know about that one. I wonder when those will be. You know, because of this terroir study and all of this un- uh, understanding that will inevitably come out, um, how that will just change the the face of our of our industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, an interesting story. A, a note of one of these brewers that came out, Sean Hill from uh, Hill Farmstead Brewing in Vermont. He's I would I would classify him as a really well known brewer in that part of the world. I didn't know him very well out here in Oregon because we don't get their beer here. But back east, he's considered one of the top brewers. He wins quite a few awards. He was one of the visitors out here, and what he he started asking us about other hops we raised. And what was interesting is he's very interested to continue using Willamette, Chinook, Centennial. He's not just all about Simcoe, uh, Sabro, or any of those kind of new brand new ones. He uses them, but he says I still like I still have beers that I use that I like to use those hops in. And he was curious if we still raised them. And yes, we do. So he was like, can I get some cuttings of those? Because I'd love to find out if what I'm sensing in your Simcoe mosaic is the same thing in your Willamette, Chinook, Centennial. Mm. So it was exciting to hear that, quite frankly. It's it's fun to watch the exploration as they dial it closer. And and again, it goes to the, you know, it's interesting in farming. We think of silos and, and, uh, it, it does break down those silos between um, all the groups that it takes to to get good beer onto the market, and um, that that was what John just spoke to. That was a really energizing conversation with someone who is completely in tune um, with his craft and is constantly sourcing for excellence in um, finding, digging deep, and and knowing more about the hop and where it's coming from and and what's happened to it. How did it come to life? Well, the older I get, the more traditional I think I'm becoming when it comes to my beer choice. Uh, All these brand new, wonderful milkshake IPA, blah, 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 is is wonderful. They're fun. But, you know, Mm. there are times when I just missed a really well-brewed, well-executed Munich Dunkel, for example. And, and, you know, things that barely exist anymore. But to to kind of like add like a whole new... uh, quality to these old styles and bringing them back out because we're we're done with the new. We want we want to bring back some of these old styles and add these classic classic touches and have people fall in love with the nuance and the romance of these these great noble mm-hmm. hops or the the great British earthy marmalade flavored hops. It's just to kind mm-hmm. of fall in love with that again would be mm-hmm. would be would be kind of like you know the day that I'm waiting for. But um, yeah. it sounds like I need to have a conversation with this guy as well. <laughs> well, that's what's so exciting about it. I mean, and and if does if if this uh, project that we've launched and 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 does what we envision, then um, those types of occurrences will happen. It just uh, there's room all around to explore and develop new hops that'll create um, you know just in innovative ways, new new designs and of beers. Um, but also let us not forget the ones that are the tried and true and, and, and mix it up. It's like anything. All it's becomes these vintage um, analog in a way, you know, great um, hops that should never be retired. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Cheers to those that brought us here, right? So Right, right. Yeah. Um, so the, kind of the question that I'm – seeing the writing on the wall is is beer going to become more like wine as we get deeper into the study and in this knowledge that's coming out a good question yeah i think that remains to be seen i think if nothing else it's going to be more seasonals you'll see more seasonals i i think that's what makes sense um you're gonna you know a lot of these brewers are trying to figure out what sticks with their their customers and so certainly if one sticks they're going to want more of it but I kind of think you're going to see people to just create more variety, maybe utilizing this idea and just creating some hops with a story or creating some beer with a story that they can sell to their customers as a seasonal ale or a, you know, a, a solstice ale of some kind of fall ale, a summertime ale, whatever it might be. 
Yeah. And I, I think I think there's opportunity here. What what it's what excites me about that thought is um, you know, wine and beer are just they're just two different types of beverages. And yet, you know, where we see wine it's it's all it's become, you know, a little bit closer to the consumer as um, not quite so pinkies up as it used to be, right? It's a little yes. easier to understand. You don't have to have a, 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 a well-defined palate to enjoy good wine, right? And you can get a two-buck chuck, right? Or you can mm-hmm. spend you know, several hundred dollars and still appreciate the bottle um, and explore. And, and um, I think beer is that way, too. I think the more we understand about whatever it is we're drinking, it just makes it more interesting. And the more we can tell about it, makes it even better, right? It's what brings us uh, to, it's all about connection and relationships, where if we know more about something or someone, it just, there's something to connect us to certain things. And that's my favorite part about this study, truly, because it's about the connection from the soil to the vine and the vine to the grower and the grower to the brewer and the brewer to the consumer. I mean, it's just this um, really great uh, circle. And um, uh, that to me is what it's all about is just bringing, giving something to the consumer that they can really connect to and, who knows? Maybe it'll grow the market in ways that we haven't predicted. Yeah, it seems like there's an evolution of the maturity of of these industries. Where where uh, and, and I'm guilty of this as well as a cicerone, but uh, you know, trying to help people understand the how wonderful beer can be and how how to pair it with your food and how to stick your pinky out and use just the right I, glass. And meanwhile, wine is they're starting to put their uh, wine in cans and kegs and and, uh, yeah, right, and right. they're they're, they're, they're trying to simplify it. Uh, yeah, yeah, and. It's a great Venn diagram, right? It's like, oh, okay, what, what, do, what are these commonalities, right? It's something to pair, something to enjoy, sit back and understand and read about it. And you're exactly right. I mean, who would have thought we'd ever been drinking wine? <laughs> right? You know. But, yeah. but but the whole point of it is just to okay let's let's really dive into what this flavor is what the story is yeah. what this terroir yeah. what this nuance is but but keep in mind and this is my personal soapbox is keep in mind it's not about the beer it's about that conversation we have together it's about that community that we yeah. build around this shared experience and the better we can create this experience that better that connection will be amongst those who are there um, so Absolutely. good beer bad beer good wine bad wine it, it Kind of, that's kind of not the point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're right. Exactly right. So on that note, let's uh, let me dive into my kind of uh, my closing question series, and this this is obviously for both of you. But um, uh, if uh, if both of you could be the beer king and beer queen of the beer world, uh, or the king and queen of the beer world for a day, what would you change? Hmm. <laughs> I think I think what I uh I think I think what I I don't know if I change much what I like about the industry that's happening is this connection between the brewer the merch and the merchant is hosting that the brewer and the farmer I think the more interaction that goes on there the better it is for both parties because if they can make good beer and we can help them do that they can afford to pay prices back to us where we can create good jobs for people in our area and create a good livelihood for our families. So I think it's, and take care of the soil, the ground at the same time, take care of the farm so it's ready for the next generation to hand off to to continue what you started. So I think that's, if I was the king, I guess that's what I would say. I think that seems like a noble reason to be king. And Queen, <laughs> Queen Liz, what's your response? So much better than mine. Wow. Like I was going to go like, um, uh, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd want to instantly be able to know where in the globe I can go to find a specific uh, type of beer and why. And I'd also want to walk, be able to have the accessibility to um, come on out to a, a hop farm anywhere, just as we do wineries, and sit and enjoy and just really immerse in that environment. Um, I'd want to have that like today. Ooh, that, that's also a good answer, though. I, 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 I appreciate both of those, actually. Um, okay, so uh, for both of you, if you had the opportunity to choose your very last meal and your very last beer, what would they be? Oh, my God. Oh. Uh, the meal is easier than the beer. There's way too many choices. Um, maybe in, for me today, 
if I had to choose the, the perfect uh, beer to go with my meal, I'll start there maybe, is uh, I'm, I'm – and it's hard to get here in this in Oregon, but I really like Odell Brewing out of Fort Collins. Mm, yeah, and they're they have a beer called the Wolf Picker, and it actually uses some hops from our farm, and it's Strata. The variety is called Strata, mm. and um, and it's a very tasty beer, a very light beer in the sense of uh, you know bitterness, but it packs a nice array of flavors. And so if I'm if I'm having that, actually it opens up the palate to my favorite food, which is, uh, or favorite protein, I'll say, is salmon. And that would be, that would be Huna Bay salmon from Alaska. Wow, John's blowing me out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting very specific with his terroir, too. <laughs> I love it. And a little bit, a little bit of risotto and, uh, and probably asparagus or some vegetables, some green. I'm pretty... I'll eat any greens, so that would be great. And rustic bread to go with it. Wow. And then so, finish that with either a fresh peach pie or a Marionberry pie from Oregon. <laughs> but only one beer with all that. Wow. Okay. I love it. Uh, all right, Liz. You're on. Anything I say at this point is gonna is just going to be whitewashed uh, well, compared I'll, to John. Well, I'll ask you the next question. Uh, you get first dibs at the next question. Okay, great. Oh, do you still want me to answer Oh, this yeah. Line? I still want Mine's your really meal. Basic. Now, I want to put a disclaimer on this. I have been a convert to beer given given the environment that we work in because I am um, a happy wine drinker. And uh, I think that's saying something, but I do enjoy a nice, crisp IPA. Mm. And uh, my, my favorite is... Uh, I just love simple um, Mexican cooking. And so... Um, I would I would take a uh, shrimp taco with maybe a little mango to offset that IPA, mm. a, little, a little sweet to it, and um, and definitely a fresh basket of tortilla chips <laughs> for nice. my second round. How's that? <laughs> nice, nice. I love it. Um, okay, so Liz, you get first dibs on this one. Um, okay. the, from all of your experiences, especially everything that we've talked about um, in this last hour, why does good beer matter? Oh, why does good beer matter? Well, isn't what beer brings us all together, right? And if we're going to get together, life's worth celebrating and celebrating together. And so good beer matters, and it's one of the oldest drinks of time. And to make it the best that it can possibly be is really our quest through the work that we do here. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would say it brings it brings people together. Beer does, and I think when people enjoy their beer, they actually conversations are better because of that. Because they get to they get to delve into things that don't revolve around the taste of the beer, other than that this is awesome, and then they get on to the subject matter. So I think if they um, enjoy their beer, they enjoy the people they're with, the conversation is just that much better. So that's what I would think beer does, is bring people together for great conversation. Mm, well, I'll drink to that. Thank you. <laughs> um, so the last couple of questions are pretty simple. Um, so if anyone's listening to this that wants to know, know more about this uh, terroir study, know more about uh, Coleman agriculture, where can they go to find out more? They can definitely go to our website, ColemanAgriculture.com, and on there we have a page uh, uh, specifically dedicated to news about our study and for the research. Um, we keep it up to date as, as uh, often as we can, and there's several links there, too, that um, populate out uh, more conversations just like the one we're having now. Great. Uh, now, final question. Uh, do you guys have any last words of wisdom before we depart? I say... Uh, I don't know if they're wise or not, but the encouragement is um, study, be curious, explore to all of us that are interested in knowing more about um, everywhere where hops are grown. The more we're curious, the more we're going to find out, the more we find out, and the more we share, the the more great work we can do together. And I would say I really, really appreciate the effort you're putting into helping us with beer and hops that go in there. So I applaud your efforts and ask you to or hopefully you can continue your endeavor for indefinitely mm -hmm. 
Well, I appreciate that very much. Um, I will continue as long as I'm physically able to. Um, but uh, yeah, this this has been a a passion project for sure. Um, well, thank you both for so much for being on this podcast. Thank you, and especially thank you for carving out the time. Um, I, I kind of figured that uh, the harvest would be over, but uh, I, I know there's a lot of work to do. So um, thank you so much for the work you're doing, um, not only just growing hops and wonderful varieties, but uh, trying to explore you know, more nuance and why, why mm-hmm. they matter. I mean, a hop is not just a hop. It's, there's more to it, but uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for your time, yeah, Jeremy, you. and come visit us um, again. Come out, and um, now you have our number. You can look us up, and we'll go. We'll, we'll go to uh, a hot sure. field and, and sit down and have a beer. Happily, happily. <laughs> I, it looks like it looks like we have to wait for it to get warmer for that to happen. But yeah, I, I'm looking, I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Empty hot fields are still a good place to have beer. We just need to put on our jacket. Yeah, hey. absolutely. The world has become more homogenized through our global industries and, of course, the internet. Yet the concept of terroir still has the power to share local identity through our beer. I hope the knowledge we gain from terroir studies like this will help us regain a sense of individual place. Join us in the next episode where we visit with an expert who takes us on a journey into the tiny and extremely complex world of yeast. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together but it's also about better appreciation of the beer you enjoy. I believe better education leads to better enjoyment. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters and visit me at goodbeermatters.net. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.